Timothy, and we might have another elder or two after the end of that, but uh, it's kind of a neat thing, and uh, as Gary would say, as God wills, a deo volante, as we learned a few weeks ago in Latin. Um, Gary will be back uh, pretty soon, and he'll be with us, but I'll kind of continue on to finish the book of 2 Timothy. And it's worth noting, um, if you're not familiar with this church, um, we have a biblical principle that uh, you find throughout the Bible. In fact, we're going to even talk about it in 2 Timothy. It's called the plurality of leadership. And that is the way God designed his church in the New Testament is there's not one person in charge of it. Other, I mean, Jesus Christ is the head of it. But as far as ministering to people and people being in charge, there's a, an a order to it. But it's not based on one person. And there's a lot of warnings in the Bible about don't place your trust in men. Uh, because people will fail. And if you go around the news at all and look at churches, uh, there are some pretty prominent churches that have failed. They have had collapses, and usually it's over moral issues, and the moral issues, they place too much trust in one person. And so one of our principles here that the elders agree on is that um, Gary's not the only person qualified to teach. Gary is a man, and he has poured into some of us greatly. And I stand here um, with no confidence in myself, but with great confidence in the Holy Spirit and a little bit of confidence in that I've been taught by a very, very wise man. So while you may hear my voice and you may see my face, uh, really you're still hearing a little bit of Gary Nock. Hopefully you're hearing all of the Bible and all of the Holy Spirit, but uh, Gary is certainly not absent from this pulpit, even though he is maybe not physically in this pulpit. Um, we're pretty sure that that's what a healthy church looks like in the Bible, is there's plurality of leadership, uh, and you'll see that a little bit. And I think that's probably true in a lot of areas of life, not to put too much trust in any one person. Today, Second Timothy, just want to set the context for the whole book, kind of a review or introduction to what's this book about, what are we going to talk about, and kind of, again, set context for the next uh, six weeks after this. And the book of Second Timothy, if you want to really summarize it, comes down to this. I don't have one of these to show you, but it's a baton, track and field. If you're familiar with track and field. Uh, in real life, the coolest part of track and field, I used to coach track and field, and I coached field events where you throw things. Much more practical. Other people, they just run around. I don't know what they coach them. I mean, go faster next time. I did, but... In fact, our worship leader was one of my athletes back in the day, throwing the shot, putting discus and javelin, and always a good time. But the most popular, sadly, is in track and field relay races, where they have a baton, and one runner has to pass it to the next runner. And that is a great symbol for the book of Second Timothy, and a little bit of the church is passing things on. Uh, the Apostle Paul will talk about all that, but he's passing things on, and passing on a baton is a, a, a difficult thing to do. And I wanted to show you a little bit of video if you're not familiar with track and field, what this looks like. And there'll be a number of um, bad examples of what happens when things go wrong because a transition, passing things on, is very, very difficult. Uh, a lot of danger in there. In fact, churches sometimes, uh, the transition is what goes wrong. And in track and field, the transition is what often uh, we'll screw up a relay team. So a little bit of video just showing you some passing things on, bad and good.
When a transition is done right, they're actually faster than one person can do it by themselves. So four runners passing it on, if they're done it just right, is actually better than one person doing it by themselves. Plurality as well. The book of 2 Timothy is largely about passing things on. Uh, There's a lot of little bits to it, and we're going to go through those little bits. Uh, But the central question for today that we want to answer is, what's 2 Timothy about? It's about passing things on, passing it on. And it will have a lot of different bits to it. But it's about passing things on, passing on faith, passing on advice, passing on wisdom, passing on a lot of things. Um, Before we dig into this real quick, let me pray, and uh, we'll take a look at 2 Timothy. Father, we thank you that we can be before you. We thank you for this place that we can gather. We thank you that we have the ability to look at your word, to talk about it openly, uh, to hear it preached, and the government isn't worried about it. We aren't worried about police coming into our building, uh, which, fathers, we pray every week. That's a privilege that uh, not everyone has around the earth. In fact, we might be a little bit special that way, and that is a blessing from you. Father, we thank you for your word in a language that we understand and that we all can understand. It's not just one person who can read it. All of us have access to you, to your Holy Spirit, and have an equal standing before you. Father, forgive us for the times that we have uh, loved imperfectly. We've been selfish. And Father, we ask today that your spirit would be the one who teaches, that any imperfections of my study or of my voice or what I say would be corrected by your spirit in each one of our hearts. And that no matter what, Father, as we take a look at your word, it would be you, your Holy Spirit, that takes that word and plants it into our heart and makes us a little bit more like your son. We thank you for this. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our perfect Savior. Amen. Okay, so the book of 2 Timothy, what's it about? What's our central question? It is about passing it on. Okay, Paul is the author. We'll talk about that. But Paul, when he's writing this as an older man, the author is looking at his life thinking, okay, there's not a lot of things ahead of me. And he's very concerned with making sure that the next generation will continue on in the faith. So he wants to pass on a lot of things. In fact, if you're going to summarize the three big things Paul wants to pass on to the next generation, the first one is leadership. There's a lot in Second Timothy about leadership, about here's good techniques for being a leader. And it's very much an older man passing on leadership to a younger man. Uh, you could even think of it as like the mantle of leadership, like, a mantle would be like a cloak, but it's, it's Paul sort of saying, I'm done, you're the next generation, Timothy, and here, here's leadership. The second thing's being passed on, like a baton, is the gospel. Paul wants to make sure that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is clearly passed on to the next generation. It's not distorted, and that was uh, something that we deal with, and it's something that they were dealing with back in those days. The third thing that Paul wants to pass on is suffering. Not that he wants somebody else to suffer, but he wants to make it very clear that suffering is part of the Christian life. Um, it's not something we emphasize all that much, and yet when you read, and I pray that you would go through Second Timothy a few times, read it, short letter, uh, notice how many times it talks about suffering, and suffering with one another, and that's, that's part of our life together. 
Doesn't make for a great motto on your sign out front, welcome to Grace Point Church, come suffer with us. But it would be an accurate, biblically thing to say about being a church, that we do suffer. Uh, This life is not perfect. We have failings, and we have illnesses, and we have heartbreak, and that's part of our life, unfortunately. If you want to blame somebody, you can blame Adam. I mean, I'm sure if we were in Eden, we would not have sinned, but uh, it happened, and that's how it goes, and we all have to deal with that. So this is a personal letter. Uh, There are different types of work in the Bible. This one is a personal letter, uh, and we want to set some context for it. You're taking notes. We're going to talk about context for a little bit. And context is kind of how does this fit into the rest of the Bible? How does this fit into history? What is the main point of it? And really, what's it mean for Grace Point? Those are good things to take a look at. Um, let's talk about the author. Uh, I like to have a picture in my head of who these people are. This is one of the more common images of the Apostle Paul. Um, just remember that they didn't have cameras. And these people were lived in, well, Paul was Jewish by birth and probably had very darker skin than this indi- would indicate. Um, sometimes I, I make fun of, like, we have Nebraska Jesus, like these white guys that are blonde in the Bible that had English accents. And that's not accurate, that these people all lived in the, you know, the Arabian Peninsula area. They, they were in the sun a lot. They had dark beards. They had dark skin, probably. They had dark eyes. Uh, but it helps me to think, I like this, he's, he's writing, he's writing by candlelight, and I get a feel, here's, here's the old man Paul writing his letter to Timothy. Uh, Paul, if you remember, was not born by the name of Paul. He was born by the name of Saul, of Tarsus. And Paul, Saul, was a Jew's Jew. He was like the perfect Jew. He was from a wealthy family, well-educated, was a leader in the Jewish church, and one of his main jobs was persecuting Christians. That was his calling. Uh, he, people probably died because of Paul. And Paul was on the road to a place called uh, Damascus, and Jesus Christ appeared to him. And like it did with any of you that have placed your faith and trust in him, Jesus Christ changed his life 180 degrees. It changed everything about him, and he became a Christian, one of the great Christian leaders and writers of the Bible, and he went on many, many journeys around what was for him the known world, all around the Mediterranean, establishing churches, preaching the gospel, correcting when the gospel has gone wrong. Uh, he was imprisoned twice for the gospel and had like literally miraculous things that occur around him, and never once did he take credit for it as himself. Quite a writer, quite a person, uh, an amazing leader. The person he's writing to, the recipient of this letter, this is the best I could do for Timothy. Um, just He was a real person, did not have a halo around him when he walked around uh, downtown. But uh, this was written in about this letter, about 66 AD. Uh, scholars will vary a little bit, might have been one year later. But he's writing to Timothy, and Timothy is in Ephesus, which is one of those churches we've talked about before, and we'll put it up on a map here in a second. But this book was written just after the book of Acts. Well, not so much after the book of Acts, but the events that happened in Acts, then comes 2 Timothy, as far as kind of putting that in a timeline together. It's about 30 years after the book of James. So James was written kind of in the early 30s. This was written in the 60s. So kind of a generation or more has gone by since uh, we were looking in James. 
Paul is old. He's not in a house prison anymore. He's in a, a prison prison. He's chained, literally. Uh, it's uh, pretty cold. It's wet. It's not pleasant. Uh, and he's probably suffering some physical ailments besides being old and in prison. Uh, he's got some challenges to life. And he's writing this letter to his uh, very, very close uh, companion, close friend, close partner in ministry, Timothy. And, uh, you know, Timothy is in Ephesus, and he's fighting people who are trying to pervert the gospel, trying to say that, no, you don't just believe, believe and do these other things, or it's about this and it's about that. And Timothy's fighting that, and it's the same stuff we fight over today. Uh, and Paul's trying to strengthen him. Timothy's an interesting guy because Timothy's um, faith, if you will, comes from his mom's side. His mom was Jewish, and his grandmother, and he talks about them a little bit, and he's kind of got this Jewish side of his family, but his dad was Greek. And that was very useful for the spread of the gospel because Paul and Timothy are traveling through the Greek-cultured areas and the Greek lands, and that's a great advantage. You have somebody that is of that culture, that's of that he's part Greek. Uh, he can reach people in a way that maybe Paul would not be able to. Now, Timothy is not an apostle. He did not witness Jesus Christ uh, face-to-face the way Paul did or the way that a lot of our hearers in the Bible did, but he was appointed for special leadership, uh, messages, a herald, a uh, forerunner. He carried probably six of Paul's letters that Paul would trust him so much. He'd say, here's this letter, take it to the church of Ephesus. And Timothy probably physically carried those around. Um, So he's a... He's kind of one of the heroes. He, obviously, they you know, named a book of the Bible after him, two of them, actually. Uh, pretty big deal. He's pretty close to Paul. And you kind of picture him as probably not a young man, but younger, uh, starting out in leadership and uh, helping run some churches. But Paul's one of Paul's trusted, closest uh, friends. Just to kind of set context for the map, you've got your traditional map of the Mediterranean, which Paul would have probably called the known world. Uh, you know, Spain was a, people are aware of Spain and Germany and England, but uh, on the far east we have, oops, yeah, this button, uh, Jerusalem over here, Ephesus, and then Rome, uh, which would be the center of the empire, and then Greek, Greece is right kind of there in the middle of all that, and yeah, it's kind of, keep that in your mind when you're thinking about these guys are riding things over long distances, and this is well before FedEx, traveling, taking a letter from Rome to Ephesus, that was a bit of a journey. That's going to take you a while. Uh, four chapters to the book. We're not going to teach one chapter a week. I'm kind of doing it more thematically, but it, kind of think of it that way. Um, what kind of letter is this? Because the Bible's got different, there's different types of literature in the Bible. There's praise literature that are to be sung, really. So when you're reading your psalms, you should actually sing them. Um, don't do it around other people if you're like me, though. Uh, there are history letters that are like hardcore history. There's praise. There's poetry. There's the Gospels. There's lamentations where we're expressing great uh, sorrow. And then there's this one, which is kind of what you would say is a encouragement letter, uh, advice letter. Uh, it's not hardcore doctrine, although there's a lot of doctrine in it. It's personal, and it's uh, a letter from Paul to Timothy. And he's saying, here's some advice, here's some things to watch out for, and be encouraged about these things. Really think about it. Buck up. Be good. Keep that in mind. The question is, is this relevant to us at Grace Point? 
which is a great question to ask anytime you read anything in the Bible, is how does this really apply to us? Is this relevant for us? I mean, here's a, a book written by a man who has been dead for 1,950-some years. Uh, he had a different culture. He spoke a different language. He wrote in a different language. It was written to a guy with a, a little bit of a different culture in a different place. We're separated by time. We're separated by distance, and we're separated by cultures. This is a very different culture, so does it apply to us? Well, keep in mind, none of the Bible was written to you. It was written for you, but not to you. These were written at a time and a place. And uh, maybe it's worth pausing right now just to talk about how you interpret the Bible and how do we get this in English. On your back of your notes, if you have notes, Uh, As I kind of like to do, I like to throw a little doctrine at you, even if I don't talk about it. But this is from Grace Point's Affirmation of Faith, and it's the section kind of on, uh, mostly about the Bible and how we interpret the Bible. I guess it gets said a lot, especially by critics. Well, that's your interpretation. You can interpret that lots of different ways. Yes and no. There's rules about interpretation And everybody has a little different set of rules. And if I can throw a big word at you, your hermeneutic is the set of rules by which you look at the Bible, that you interpret the Bible. And Grace Point has what I would consider uh, a conservative set of rules in that we want it to be consistent. And it's kind of written there in boldface. Our hermeneutic is that we will interpret the Bible using the normal definition of the word, not some weird definition or rare definition, but the normal definition. We will use the literal definition of the words in the Bible as they meant by the author. So if it was written in Greek, we want to know what the Greek meant with that word, not what the English version of it is. We want to be grammatical, that there's rules of grammar, right? Parts of speech and the really boring stuff in English that maybe some of us didn't pay a lot of attention to. But there's rules about it. What's the subject? What's the verb? What does it mean? What is it describing? Those are rules. There's, you don't interpret the rules of grammar. They're, they're rules, kind of like spelling. We also want to be um, the historic, understand how this fits into history, and that the Greek word for love, pick one example, might have many different definitions, but we're going to look for the definition that happened at that place and at that time. And in fact, I can't give you a great example for this, but how they determine it, whatever. It's, we want to look at the historical context, and one of the big parts of it is what we'll call systematic, meaning the Bible is consistent with the rest of the Bible. If Paul uses a version in Second Timothy of a word that might seem to contradict it in a different part of the Bible, we need to look at it in such that the Bible doesn't contradict itself, and it's systematic. And that's a very conservative take on this because what we say at this church, what we believe, is that the Bible is the Bible. And you might not like what it says, but this is what it says based on the literal, normal, grammatical, systematic, and historic definition following the rules of interpretation. Not every church believes that. And I don't say they're wrong, but what they, when you take a different tact on that, you end up with um, inconsistencies. And some people just waved their hand and said, that's just the way it is. It's inconsistent. And that's okay. Would you notice it when you go to another church? You might not notice it for a long time. But if you get into the doctrine of the what is exactly it that you believe, um, 
you can get some different things. And what I guess just as a warning of anything, uh, anything to do with salvation, if it's anything other than belief in Jesus Christ, you need to be very careful. If somebody says, well, you've got to believe, but you've got to be baptized, and you've got to show good works, or you have to have a gift that's visible, um, those are things you need to look sideways at because probably what you're going to find out is they're interpreting the Bible in a less conservative way. So at Grace Point, we take great pains to this, and it, it honestly can slow you down just a little bit, but I want you to know that that's what we've been taught, that's what we've prayed over, that's what we've been led to, and we spent three or four years together as elders coming up with some of these things, that putting it on paper so that we can be reminded and you have the ability to kind of look at what we believe so you're not surprised or uh, hoodwinked in any way. We want to be very transparent that way, which is a long way of saying the Bible's written for you but not to you, and we're going to interpret it very carefully. Is it relevant? Well, following the rules of we've talked about, there's two main things that would say it's relevant. First off, it's instructional. This letter is an instruction letter. Do we need instruction? Or are we, we got it all wired? Well, we need instruction. Uh, all of us have a leadership role in your family, amongst friends, at your job. Might be even something you don't even think of yourself as a leader. But in some way, shape, or form, each one of us is up against other people in life. And that means it's important for us to have some instruction for that. Two especially in a day and age where things seem a little chaotic, this is an encouraging letter. This is a letter that says, hey, things are going to be tough for you as a Christian. Be encouraged. Don't be ashamed. Be confident in the gospel. Be confident in what Jesus Christ has done with you. Don't hide your, your faith. And so it's very encouraging. Don't be mean. Be nice. Be kind to one another when you disagree. Those things are all throughout there, and you'll see all that. And so when I look at, do we need instruction and do we need encouragement? Yeah, I'm pretty confident this this book's going to be pretty relevant to us. The key verse of this is, uh, there's uh, there's a key verse and there's a famous verse, if you will. Uh, The key verse is, I believe, is Timothy 4.2, 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. We both know a guy that name is Knock, and that's his probably, that's his favorite verse. He likes to shout that occasionally at us. When he doesn't know what else to say, preach the word. Um, Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That's not just for Gary to be preaching the word. All of us preaching with our mouth, spreading the gospel. Uh, Probably the most famous one that gets quoted mostly in context. Paul, kind of looking back on his life, I fought the good fight. Finished the course, which is a race, by the way, like track with the baton, and I've kept the faith. Uh, my godfather, my Irish football coach, my dad's best friend, he would close every conversation, every lesson, every practice with keep the faith, and that's where that comes from. And I occasionally say that to people when I don't know what else to say. Keep the faith. kind of works. It's pretty good. So those are kind of that's uh, the 4-2. There's a lot in that that you can kind of that will ext- – <laughs> excuse me, extrapolate out what we're doing here and how it kind of fits in. Good fight, a little preview for a couple weeks from now. That's an interesting phrase. We tend to think of that as combat. It's not. It's more like living under suffering 
And in fact, that phrase, good fight, could be described as enduring beautiful agony. Not a bad phrase, beautiful agony. At least makes you think about it. Well, that's strange. I've never thought of agony as beautiful, but it might be. There's some repeating ideas in here to move on. Some themes that you'll see throughout the letter that kind of these repeating things that Paul comes back to. Uh, They're a good way to explain context if you kind of have the themes identified. It's also for me, when I study a book, if I can get some of the basic themes, then I kind of have a handle for understanding kind of how this fits together and what he's talking about here. It's going to kind of revolve mostly around one of three themes. These are very similar to the, the context as well. But the three themes basically are, one is suffering is to be expected and to be shared. The idea that as Christians, we should expect a little suffering. And if you're not suffering, someone around you is. And you, should, you need to be a part of that, to share that with them. Kind of the idea of carrying burdens. And um, sometimes looking on it as, uh, I know we always pray for people to be healed quickly and to be free from pain. And you should, and I do. And yet, biblically, it's sometimes very good for us, the suffering and pain. It's uh, very refining, uh, but it's also good for us to share with one another suffering and pain because it will happen. <coughs> Second, and this shows up a lot, don't be ashamed of the faith. This is something Paul repeats several times to Timothy. Do not be ashamed of being a Christian. Do not be ashamed to correct somebody who has the uh, talking about a false gospel. Do not be ashamed to stand up and say, I'm a Christian. And third one, preach the word. Preach the gospel. Tell people about the gospel. Share verbally the gospel. There's a principle about living your life in such a way that people see the gospel in you, and that's absolutely true. But this word, this term, preach, does mean preach, talk, speak. Don't stay silent. Don't be ashamed. So, From an encouraging standpoint, some of these common themes, these will come up again and again. Uh, We get our Awana Club. Awana, have you ever wondered what Awana means? Awana, I want to. I don't know. What is this? Anyways, it comes out of 2 Timothy. It's an acronym, and we'll cover that when we get there. But it has to do with not being ashamed. So our central point today to introduce the book of 2 Timothy to you, what is this about? It's about passing it on. We might be talking about passing on leadership, passing on the gospel, passing on suffering, sharing the suffering, passing on the good news of Jesus Christ. But it's being passed on. This idea that we're handing off, uh, not just to people who don't know Christ, handing off to one another some encouragement, handing off to one another leadership, handing off to whatever, the thing that Timothy is going to talk about. So it's always about this idea of passing it on and in your life, preaching the word. And for the next six weeks, we're going to dig into that. Uh, Some different themes, some great warnings that uh, feel like they were written yesterday to us and some things that were happening in the church that are pretty interesting as we go through this. And I think at the end of this, you'll have a, hopefully, like I've discovered, a a real new appreciation for the the person of Paul and the person of Timothy and kind of what they were going through at that time. Preaching verbally, preaching with your actions. Um, Right now, we're going to do a little, if you want to call it preaching, but demonstrating what we believe Uh, by being the church and following one of the ordinances of the church. And that's called communion. 
And if the men who are going to help serve communion would come forward now. Communion is an act that we are called to in the Bible, that there's two primary ordinances or, I don't know if you call them rules, but uh, things that we're encouraged to do as a church, that this is what the church has to do. One of them is believer baptism, which we uh, got a chance to witness uh, very gloriously a few weeks ago. And the other one is communion, where the church communes together to remember Jesus Christ. And uh, communion has been uh, done since 34 AD, give or take. Uh, it's been done all around, it is done all around the world, all the way from Macau, let's say, to Ephrata. It's been done on the bottom of the ocean. It's been done, observed, celebrated on the surface of the moon. Uh, communion is something that the church does together. And that's what we're here to do. Communion is a memory. It's a, a tool, a thing that we do together to remember Jesus Christ. Uh, there's no grace imparted, we believe. Uh, it's, it's grape juice and a little piece of pie crust. Uh, but it's a tool. It's a tool to help us memory, to help us remember. Uh, if you're not a believer, this will not make you a believer. But if you're not a believer, I would just kind of politely ask you not to partake because it doesn't, it's for believers to do. Um, if you're a parent, uh, when your children participate, it's entirely up to you. We we have no guidance for you on that. We believe that's a family decision that you make within your family when it's time uh, for your children to participate in the church remembrance of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's important that we remember who we are before Christ. And if you were saved at a very young age, that may be difficult. If you were saved as an adult, that's probably altogether uh, too easy to remember. But we were all sinful. Uh, we had no hope. And it was God who saved each one of us. He reached into the cesspit of the world and pulled us out of it and gave us his righteousness and saved us from that. And when we do this, it's, it's to be, it's, we're cautioned to do it very carefully. And so I want to just pause for a second and just have, uh, give you a time of silent prayer that if there's anything on your heart that needs to be forgiven, you need forgiveness for, that maybe you need to offer to somebody, uh, I think it was having a, a clear conscience or a clear account with God. I want to pause and let you have time to do that, and then we'll move on. So just take a minute and consider and uh, make sure you're clean. Our guidance for, uh, second, or for this communion comes from the book of uh, 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, the Apostle Paul again. Uh, he tells us, uh, at the Last Supper, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So I'll ask Dave Gossett to give thanks for the bread, and then we'll distribute. 